Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. I want to talk to you this morning about understanding grace. Is grace an important subject? Oh, yes. So Peter writes at the very end, the last verse of his second letter, he says to us, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God means for us to grow, does he not? Now, is that a suggestion or is that a command, do you think? It's a command. It's a command that we be deliberate. I want to grow. I want to mature. Unlike the 10 suggestions. How is a person saved? By grace through faith. Do you have to add something to that to be saved? No. Simply by grace through faith, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. If that's how I'm saved, how do I grow? Is there any difference? How do I grow? He tells us in that verse, by grace through faith in who? Jesus Christ. That's how I grow. How many want to grow as, as Christians? You're serious? I want to grow. I want to grow. I want to become more and more like who? Like Jesus. Now, we talked last week. I said, I suggested to you that before we can grow in grace, we have to understand that there are two major obstacles to growing in grace. Who remembers the first major obstacle from last week? Self. An absorption with self. How many realize that we can be very self-absorbed? It's all about us. Very easily. It's part of our sin nature. Notwithstanding that, we're taught and we're trained. We're given that perspective. Love yourself. Have high self-esteem. Assert yourself. Have self-confidence, self-assurance, et cetera, et cetera. Our whole educational system, our parents, our way of life as Americans tell us it's all about self. But as Christians, and more particularly as Christian parents, we want to train our children to be willing to what? To assert themselves or to deny themselves. When you think back in, in your growing up years, if you grew up in a Christian home, what was inculcated into you? What were you trained? What were you taught? We're going to be more like Jesus. You trained and taught your children that they want, they want to be more like him. Otherwise, the world just has its way with us. Isn't that true? We can't grow in God's grace if we are simply dependent on ourselves. I remind you once again of what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. He said to his disciples, now a disciple is one who follows a teacher, follows a master. If anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's all about that. That's a Christian life. That's a Christian life. 
We are Americans, aren't we? And we're proud of being Americans. We're proud of our country. We want to be good citizens and so forth. But I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we are, before we're Americans, we're citizens of a brand new kingdom. It's God's kingdom. That kingdom comes before being an American. I mean by that, that our culture, our American culture, prides itself on success, prides itself on self-achievement and self-acknowledgement and self-assurance and all those things, when in fact the Bible speaks entirely differently. There are ways in which we assert ourselves, but you have to know how to assert yourself appropriately and biblically. Are you with me? Am I making sense? So we talked about self last week, and this week I want to talk to you about the other obstacle, the tremendous obstacle to growing in grace, and this is false grace. We can't grow if we do not understand the difference between true grace and false grace. And this has confused lots of Christians over the years. I've seen it in our own church over the years. I've seen people buy into this false, spurious grace, and their faith just does not grow. They do not grow. So let me start off by asking you this. What is grace truly? What is grace truly? Rick Roberts, one of our elders, shared with me a couple of years ago, he, he did a uh, kind of an informal experiment, and he asked our church members at random to define grace. And he was shocked at the number of people who could not tell him and give him a clear definition of grace. Absolutely shocked. He reminded me of that last weekend. He said, you need to tell him what grace is. I said, give me a week. Grace, simply defined as what? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Is that something we're necessarily used to? No, we're used to what? Meriting favor. We're used to jumping through hoops. We're used to pleasing people in order to get them to smile at us, right? Or sign our paycheck. <laughs> Unmerited favor. It's the, it's the, it's the kindness shown regardless of whether it is properly earned or properly deserved. How many of us have felt the tension of showing grace to somebody when you know they don't deserve it? You just want to hold that back. You don't deserve it. Wow. You understand what I'm talking about? The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, have you forgotten that it was God's grace that led you to repentance? We didn't repent first and then experience his grace. His grace first came into our life, and that grace led us to repentance. We understand it in just human relationships. When someone is really kind to us and we know we don't deserve it, they know we don't deserve it, and when they are kind to us, that creates something in us, doesn't it? It draws us to that person. And in some way, we repent of some kind of ill attitude or ill behavior. There's a number of examples of this in the New Testament, particularly. That father in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son, do you remember him? And his son had gone off and squandered all of his inheritance on wild living. 
And then he comes home with his tail between his legs, and the father just gives him what for, doesn't he? Castigates him, doesn't he? Yells at him. Ignores him. Tells the older brother, shun him. No. What does the father do? He embraces him. He runs to him. Undeserved. Undeserved. Grace is Jesus welcoming that woman who was a sinner in Luke chapter 7. Grace is saying to that hated tax collector. Were tax collectors the favorite people in Jewish culture? Not even the favorite people in our culture. <laughs> Remember Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19. Jesus is walking through the city, looks up, Zacchaeus is in this tree, he's a little short guy, can't get a good view, so he wants to see Jesus, and Jesus sees him up there, says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down, I've got to stay at your house tonight. Whoa, nobody says that to him. Grace, grace, acknowledging him, embracing him. Stephen. When Stephen was being stoned, did he call fire down from heaven on those who were killing him? No. He prayed for those who stoned him. We read in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Man, I don't know about you, but I'd be going, God, get them. Grace. Grace is the patient mother with a sick and cranky child in the middle of the night. Any moms can relate to this? Grace is a patient wife with an insensitive husband. I'm not going to ask for any hands there. (laughs) Grace is a patient, loving husband with a disrespectful wife. Grace is a thoughtful and considerate clerk with a difficult customer. Grace is an understanding teacher with a dull or obnoxious student. Grace is that quality in the heart of God that causes him not to deal with us according to our sins or to repay us according to our iniquities. This is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 10. Look at this with me. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh my, isn't that beautiful? In fact, grace is what love always must be when it meets the unlovely, when it meets the weak, the inadequate, the undeserving, the despicable. Wow. Do we have a way to go? Some of us? Yes. Grace responds to need without reference to desert or merit. It is simply unmerited favor. And grace is the opposite of legalism. Legalism says, in effect, that you get only what you deserve. It tells you to do certain things, keep certain rules, and when you do so, you'll be all right. In any case, love, kindness, favor must be earned. 
You're only acceptable as long as you're performing. When you stop performing, you're not acceptable. And we are very good at communicating that to others. That's legalism. Grace, on the other hand, gives you what you have not deserved. It pours out love, kindness, favor, unconditionally. You don't have to earn it. That's mind-blowing when you think about it. That's what grace is. Because of that, grace changes a person. Grace changes people. This happens even on the everyday human level of relationships. When someone is gracious and patient and kind with you, do you respond typically in a hostile manner toward that person? No. No, their grace, their kindness breaks through. Even if you are really upset and you've got a, you've got a bone to pick with somebody and you're going to tell them what for, and they are very gracious with you and patient and kind don't react, and you go, so there. <laughs> Proverbs says a kind word turns away wrath. We understand this. When, when people are patient with us, when they're kind to us, when they're gracious to us, we may be in really out of sorts, but something of their kindness affects us and changes us. My wife, I tell her often, her gracious, kind, patient love for me has made me the man that I'm becoming. He's freed me to become a better, fuller, stronger man, husband, father, and pastor. I would not be the man I am today without her in my life. Even an animal, even a dog. How many dog owners do we have here? Notice I'm nice for cat owners, dog owners. <laughs> Grace does not affect cats. They are <laughs> cats just do not qualify for this. Even a dog will become a better creature if its master, in some sense meaningful to that dog, loves him and does not reject him because of his misbehavior and his doggy limitations. I mean, no, the dog's going to have limitations. You ever said this? Bad doggy. <laughs> or gone after him with a rolled up newspaper. <laughs> See, that's what grace does by its very nature. It turns hearts. It changes us. Once more, to remind you about Jesus, and he shows us how grace works. In grace, he accepts Zacchaeus. And what happened almost instantly with Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus' heart has changed, and spontaneously he says this. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Notice how grace, Jesus' gracious acceptance of him, changed him, affected him. Instantly. That's how grace works. Jesus accepted that woman who was a sinner in the house of Simon, forgave her sins. And what happens? What happens? A new love is born in her heart. The result of a law that says a person who is forgiven much will also what? 
love much. Luke chapter 7. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Wow. See, that's what grace does to a person. It changes a person. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, that grace de destroys the power of sin. It destroys the power of sin. Sin shall not be your master. Why? Because I'm not under law, but I'm under grace. Law has no effect except to exacerbate sin. Grace destroys it. There is, however, one absolutely inescapable condition that must be met if, in fact, grace is to change a person. Grace must be believed. It must be believed. It has to be met by an answering trust. We all understand this. It's simply an inescapable fact that love expressing itself in gracious behavior will not bring about a heart renewal and a change to the one who receives it unless that love is perceived for what it really is, unless that love awakens human heart trust. It's not that love is lacking. It's simply that love is powerless unless it is welcomed with trust. Somebody can tell you all day long, I love you, I love you, I love you, but if you don't believe that, that's not gonna, you're not going to go through any kind of real change, are you? But when you believe that, someone comes along and says, I love you, and they, you know that down deep inside your heart, that changes you toward that person, doesn't it? See, when you understand God's love and you believe that he loves you, believe it. And down deep inside, you need that. The human heart is desperate without love and forgiveness and acceptance. That's one of the greatest needs a human being has, simply to be accepted. Because we're, we're relational. Relationship you, it will never, ever, ever flourish. You will never flourish as a human being unless you are experiencing that unconditional acceptance. It changes us. This is the miracle that God works in our life. A thirsty man may have enough water to swim in, but if he's afraid to drink it, if he doesn't think the water is safe, he is going to be, what, continually thirsty, isn't he? He doesn't believe, doesn't trust. That's why the Bible makes so much of faith. Over and over and over and over, we believe, we, we're told, believe, believe and be saved. Whosoever believes, to everyone that believes. This constant refrain, to believe, to believe. When I believe that God is totally trustworthy, when I believe that his love is absolutely real, that his kindness is utterly sincere, that his concern for me really does mean abundant life, then his grace can do that which it is its very nature to do, change me. But if I don't believe, if I doubt, I'm still stuck in the same old life uh, that I have. But his grace can reach me where I really live. It can transform me. It can touch 
the very deepest motivating desires and drives of my heart and make me a new person. Make me a new person. That's what grace, real grace does. That's what real grace is all about. But there is a counterfeit of grace, a false, spurious, cheap pretender. Wherever there's something real and genuine, you can count on the fact that there's going to be a counterfeit. I promise you, that's life. But this counterfeit, it's not the real thing. It tells you that it doesn't matter how you behave. Does it matter how we behave? Does God mean for us to obey him? Absolutely. This counterfeit of grace trades on a shallow theology. It says to us things like this. You can sin all you want and everything will be all right because God accepts you as you are and he will always forgive you. Is that true? Will he always forgive you? What do you think? Yes. Yes, he always forgives. Right? But you can't sin all you want. You can't sin all you want. I've heard people tell me, he says, well, you know, once saved, always saved. I'm in, so I have to worry. I can do whatever I want, live however I want, because God will always forgive me. It does matter how we live. Let me say as strongly as I know how, this is not what the Bible teaches. It's not what I believe, not what I teach. Grace, the real thing, is not the same as permissiveness. It's not the same as license. And there are a lot of people who try to live their Christian life as an expression of license, doing whatever they want under the misguided notion that it's okay with God. Grace never teaches us to go on sinning that grace may increase. Nor does it teach us that we can sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace. Rather, grace takes sin seriously. Let me say that again. Grace takes sin seriously, and as well, it takes God's law seriously. But grace also enables us to begin to keep that law and to repent of our sin. If you don't take sin seriously, if you don't take God's law seriously, does it matter at all? Grace? No, it doesn't. Absolutely doesn't. Anything that claims to be grace and yet fails to lead in that direction is not grace. It falls miserably short of God's gracious purposes for us. In fact, grace is what it is only because... God's law and our failure to obey it are matters of utmost urgency. Think about that. God has given us a very, very important law. It's called the law of gravity. Is it absolutely urgent that we obey that law? To be aware of it? Absolutely. What happens if you don't obey the law of gravity? Yeah, you'd end up in big trouble. All his laws are like that. You have to have a a profound appreciation and a sense of urgency about his law. It's because our sin, and also because our sin is so ugly and so heinous and so deadly, 
that grace comes to us as such a glorious, liberating, life-changing thing. Let me ask you a question. What would constitute a forgiveness and acceptance that is meaningful? What would constitute a forgiveness and acceptance that is meaningful? Something truly dreadful or something trivial? What do you think? Something dreadful? Something trivial? It's A. (laughs) Think with me. If the sin or the perception of sin and consequently of forgiveness is something trivial and unimportant, then so too is grace. It doesn't mean anything. We say all the time to people, oh, no big deal, no big deal, no big deal, when it may be a really big deal to them, and we diminish it. Grace is unimportant. Or if the sin or the perception of sin is a matter of seriousness and importance, then so too will be grace. Agreed? What if forgiveness is used as an occasion to go right on doing and living the way we lived before we were believers? Does that behavior mean that forgiveness and acceptance means everything or nothing? It means nothing. Just going on living, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing. You see, at that point, grace really has not reached the heart. And the person hasn't been touched by it. No change. You can say all day long, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. But if you're living your life the same way you have been living it, grace hasn't hasn't had an effect. You haven't really received it. It's simply an intellectual exercise for you. There's been no heart change. You're not really a new creation. So grace is not something that frees us to go on sinning to our heart's content. I was telling my granddaughter a while back, explaining, trying to explain this to her, and I said, Zoe, I'm free. I'm free. And she looked at me and says, I'm four. (laughs) I said I said to myself, this is gonna have to wait till another day. You see, we only come to God's grace in the first place because we have seen the urgency of his law and the awfulness of our sins. You realize you're in a desperate situation and you look up and say, God, help me. And you come to his grace. We come to his grace because we have been, in effect, shaken to the core by the knowledge of what we ought to be and what we are not. And we can't get there in our own strength. We need the grace of God. Because we long for release from the sins that have been destroying us. 
And grace is not doing away with the law, by the way. But grace is the way of its fulfillment. Grace is the way of its fulfillment. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, we're not just keeping a whole bunch of rules. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. He is called the Spirit of grace, and He empowers us to live out God's will. We have a whole new orientation, a whole new direction for our life, a whole new appetite for the things of God because of His grace. You just look at your own relationships. You may be estranged from somebody, arguing with them, it, it odds with them, and all of a sudden one or the other becomes very, very gracious and accepting and loving and kind. The other person has to change in response to the change. And now you, 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 have a, you develop a new, a new appetite in that new relationship, a new enjoyment, a new appreciation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul writes this, the, all the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. All the righteous requirements are fully met in us. Think about that for a second. If you and I as Christians are united to Christ, are we united with Him? Paul tells us that we reunite with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. When he was raised to new life, we are raised with him to new life. Again and again and again, Paul uses this phrase over 200 times in his letters. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. I am in Christ. You are in Christ, united to him, inseparably. What's true of him is now true of us. Did he keep God's law perfectly? Absolutely. Any flaws? No, he kept the whole law perfectly. But not only that, he took God's wrath for all of the failures, didn't he? So all the righteous requirements of the law now are fully met in us. And again, this is because of God's what? His grace. His grace. Jesus got the A for us. And it's totally legitimate. No cheating. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. It's in the context of several of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Warnings to persevere in the faith, not to go back. And it's in the context of this particular verse that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace. He says, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. It's the Holy Spirit that communicates God's grace to us. You see, the law can only produce a kind of outward, a kind of external morality. The law cannot produce a true heart righteousness. We saw last time how God gave the law first to what? Make us conscious of sin. And then secondly, it aggravates sin. The law was added so the trespass might increase, not decrease. So the law doesn't serve to help us. It doesn't serve to at all save us. 
It cannot create a true heart righteousness. By itself, the law cannot produce that which it requires. It can only produce guilt, condemnation, and judgment. The law says to me, you must keep me perfectly. And if you don't keep me perfectly, I condemn you. That's what the law says. Does that make the law a bad thing? No. He tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 8, what the law could not do, and that it was weakened by the human sinful nature. An imperfect person cannot keep God's perfect law perfectly. And so we turn to him, we acknowledge that. As a parent, you raise up your child as an infant, as a toddler, as a young child. You raise them on the law. You teach them the law. And so at some point they realize, I can't do this. I can't do this. You're right. Now let me tell you the gospel. <laughs> let me give you the good news. Let me tell you about Jesus. Now they're going to appreciate Jesus and the grace of God far more than they ever would have before. Grace by its very nature produces both the desire and the power to do what the law requires, grace. I have the spirit of grace living in me. He creates in me the desire and as well grants me the power to do what God wants me to do. My part is just to walk after him and trust him. Grace writes God's law on our very hearts. Grace and grace alone does it. And if something comes along that calls itself grace and fails to do that, then it isn't genuine grace. It's a counterfeit. It's a lie. It's cheap. Grace can and must produce a heart change. Once it's answered by true, wholehearted faith, I believe, I believe. We all know people who are anxious and fretful and fearful, quite frankly, because they've not come, they've not come to the Lord and enjoyed his grace and rested in that grace. It's just a fact. Once they do, their whole life has changed. Whole life has changed. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. And you put your life in his hands. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your abundant grace. We thank you for Jesus, who's made that grace possible to us. We thank you, Father, for your spirit who lives in us and makes that grace real to us. We love you this morning. We give you thanks. I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, doesn't know your grace, has not trusted you and trusted in Jesus. I pray, God, that you would grant them repentance. Speak to them in their own heart about your kindness and your love for them and turn their heart and bring them into your family. We give you thanks this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.